This is episode number 64 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective because, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. I have talked since the beginning of the Trump presidency about the dangers of desensitization. And frankly, of all the things I have predicted about Trump, this might be the one that is as dead on as any other. And I don't know how much of it is by uh, design and how much of it is just dumb luck on his part or some combination. But there is absolutely no question that Donald Trump benefits from our collective desensitization. Correct. Uh, There are things that happen on a daily and sometimes hourly basis which in a normal presidency, we would be talking about for days, if not weeks. Correct. However, in the Trump presidency, they immediately get forgotten because something else bat crap crazy happens right behind it, sometimes within the same hour and oftentimes multiple times in the same day. This has created, I think, a very dangerous situation where we don't respond to anything. Even myself, I mean, I, I obviously I am inundated with the news on a, a minute-by-minute basis because that's what I do. That's my job. That's who I am. Uh, it's been that way my whole life. I am the ultimate news junkie. But even I, who have tried very, very hard to be able to maintain some ability to be outraged, has found myself, especially in the past few days, completely desensitized to things that would, and in any other situation, create your outrage meter to go to an 11. Let me give you one example, because it kind of involves me. One of the dozen or so stories that fit this category that have occurred in just the last few days since our last podcast, I mean, since the last podcast on Wednesday afternoon, Los Angeles, California time, there have been so many things, at least a dozen, that would fit into this category. One of them has some connection to me in that about five or six weeks ago, I wrote a a column for Mediate. Talked about it on the podcast at least once or twice, in which I said, hey, um, news media, maybe somebody ought to take a look at whether or not Donald Trump is manipulating the stock market. Do you remember that? If you're a fan of the podcast, I'm sure you do remember this. Because I was looking at it, as I do, very carefully, because I'm, you know, I got a little bit of money in the, in the stock market, and I'm a news junkie, so I'm constantly looking, okay, what's happening? And the jumps in the stock market were so clearly as a result of actions by Donald Trump, both in the positive and a negative direction. And when you look at how his mind works and how corrupt he is and the fact that he has acknowledged, essentially, trying to manipulate the stock market back in the 80s or maybe the early 90s by using his own celebrity in the news media... This is what he did. He would pretend, you know, he's pretending to be rich, which he's not. He would pretend in the media, using his celebrity, to pretend that he was going to buy a company. And then he would try to manipulate the stock price based upon this this bogus threat that he was going to buy a company that he never could buy because he didn't have the cash to do it. And and, and this was much more of a small-time affair than what he could pull off as president. But when you look at just the basics. And I have no proof of this happening. I'm just looking at who is in the position of power, how easy it is, what his past history tells us, what the way he the way he looks at the world tells us. 
all the pieces are there for someone to investigate this. Well, finally someone did. Vanity Fair did. Vanity Fair put together an extensive and explosive story that uh, swept the internet for about uh, 90 minutes because then something else crazy happened right after it. I don't even remember what. But uh, Vanity Fair put together a story that theorizes, and again, there's no smoking gun here, but theorizes that, yeah, actually there's quite a bit of circumstantial evidence that somebody is capitalizing incredibly heavily to the tune of over a billion dollars in some situations based upon Trump's actions, which, again, it's important to point out, the tariff issue is so unique in that it allows almost for the perfect stock market manipulation tool because everybody knows the stock market hates the tariffs. And so every time Trump is pro-tariff, the stock market goes down. Every time he indicates there's going to be a deal with China, sometimes as a total lie, sometimes the White House admits it's a total lie, the stock market has gone up. So Vanity Fair put that out there, and I read it, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's really kind of crazy. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people started retweeting my old article, and the media put it back out like, hey, you know, Ziegler was the first guy to say this. And even I was like, Eh. <laughs> Even I was like, okay, yeah, what else is new? I mean, that's how desensitized we are. That's how absurd everything has gotten. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, but that's where we are. That's where we are. Even a guy who, who was one of the first, if not the first, to say, hey, can we please take a look at this market manipulation issue when there comes back some at least theoretical evidence that that might be happening? I'm like, Okay. Yeah. Wow. You know what? I'm just not feeling anything anymore because we're so damn desensitized. And I can't remember a period of several days in which the desensitization was more pronounced than since our last podcast. I mean, almost immediately after episode number 63 comes down word of this bat crap crazy meeting that Donald Trump apparently had a meltdown in where Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, is shaking her finger at him, apparently saying that, that, that with Trump all roads lead to Russia, and uh, that the meeting was a complete bust. It broke up. Uh, apparently Donald Trump in the meeting uh, denigrated General James Mattis, saying that he had done a lousy job with ISIS and that he himself had defeated ISIS in a much shorter period of time than Mattis said was possible. I mean, this is this is the kind of thing that you, you if you made up, people would say, oh, come on, you're, you're, you're Trump derangement syndrome. This this can't be real. It, you know, get, can you get back to the real world? Uh, that, that's what, but this is where we are now. I mean, everybody in the meeting said this is what happened. Republicans, Democrats, there was nobody saying that this was an inaccurate uh, description of what occurred in the meeting. You cannot be serious. But this is where we are. And, uh, you know, the, the idea that uh, Trump is, is saying these things in, in major meetings between Democrats and Republicans as they're trying to figure out how to handle this uh, Turkey-Syrian situation, it, it's, it's, if it wasn't so uh, scary, it would be hilarious. I mean, it is a comedy sketch. And speaking of comedy sketches, General Mattis decided to do exactly that. General Mattis happened to be speaking at a a black tie event. I think it was the night in which this broke. It might have been the next night. You know, with the desensitization comes confusion over timelines because so much has happened, you forget exactly when it occurred. But it was soon after news broke of of this bat crap crazy meeting where Trump has the meltdown and the meeting gets disbanded. And General Mattis decides to use for comedy purposes some of the things that Trump apparently said in that meeting. And here's what that sounded like. Stand before you, as was noted here, uh, really uh, having achieved greatness. I mean, I'm not just an overrated general. I am the greatest, the world's most overrated. And 
So I would just tell you, too, that I'm honored to be considered that by, by Donald Trump because he also called Meryl Streep an overrated actress. So I guess I'm the Meryl Streep of generals. And, and frankly, that sounds pretty good to me. Uh, and you do have to admit uh, that between me and Meryl, at least we've had some victories. <clears throat> And some of you were kind during the reception and asked me, you know, uh, if this bothered me to have been rated this way uh, based on what Donald Trump said. I said, of course not. I'd earned my spurs on the battlefield, Martin, as you pointed out, and Donald Trump earned his spurs in a letter from a doctor. So <laughs> not in the least bit put out by it. And I think the only person in the military that Mr. Trump doesn't think is overrated is who you pointed out, Martin, and that's Colonel Sanders. <laughs> Okay, now, from a comedy standpoint, for, for an old general, that's pretty good. Good stuff. Solid. Uh, however, uh, I am definitely in the category, uh, and there are several people I saw uh, commenting on this in, this in this same category, of people who say, okay, that's nice, but doesn't that kind of undermine the seriousness of the subject matter? I mean, aren't you kind of playing into Trump's hand here where this is all just a big joke? This is not just a joke anymore. This is very serious. Now, I'm not 100 percent against what Mattis said, because I do believe that part of the way you get at Trump is by joking about him. First of all, it drives him back crap crazy. Correct. Um, But also, I think it has an impact on the public. I mean, the worst thing you can be as a leader is a joke. And it's actually worse. It's worse to be a joke than it would be to be considered to be corrupt, I think, in some ways. Especially if you were strong and corrupt, which Trump is creating that impression that that's what he is. And frankly, unfortunately, a lot of his fans love that. So I I understand where Mattis was coming from, but... I and a lot of other people would like to see Mattis be a little stronger when it comes to more serious criticisms of the president. It is interesting, though, to note he did not refer to Donald Trump as the president, right? That's interesting. That, to me, said a lot. He referred to him as Donald Trump and Mr. Trump. He did not refer to him as President Trump, which, again, I'm sure drove... President Trump nuts. Correct. Uh, but, uh, you know, so I, I want to hear more from Mattis. I think that it's it's in absolutely incumbent on people like him, who uh, used to be obviously a huge member of the, the Trump cabinet, to show some balls and and lay it out there and make it clear this guy is not fit to be president of the United States. Now, you might say that, well, he did make it clear there, Zig. Yeah, but he has to do so in a serious way, not one that can be dismissed as just him uh, joking, because if you're joking, inherently, it's not that serious. Now, there's another uh, person who was a Trump supporter who came out uh, after this meeting and actually supported Nancy Pelosi. What we witnessed on the part of the president was a meltdown. Sad to say. Right. So that's Pelosi talking about the meeting. And she also said with Trump, all roads lead to Russia, which, of course, is an allusion to the Mueller investigation and maybe some what some have referred to as conspiracy theories regarding whether Trump is beholden to Russia, compromised by Russia, a Russian asset, is he a Manchurian candidate? Most of those descriptions I have fought very, very hard to uh, agree with. I do not want to agree with them because I'm not a conspiracy guy. I'm an anti-conspiracy guy. It seems too far-fetched. It seems impossible. It's obviously not something you want to believe it has occurred with the president of the United States. But I've become more and more open to this concept, especially after some of the things we've learned with regard to the re- Ukrainian scandal. And the Ukrainian scandal, I believe, augments and proves so much of what was alleged with regard to Russia. Interestingly, and I'm going to get to this momentarily, with his fans, it actually works in the opposite direction, which is incredibly frustrating. But one of those who really surprised people by coming out and backing up Nancy Pelosi was a Republican congressman by the name of Francis Rooney. Now, Rooney is an interesting dude because, one, 
Uh, he is rich, which protects him, right? He's old, but he's rich, so he's protected by that. He's a friend of Mitt Romney's. He's from Florida, and he's apparently retiring. Now, before he officially announced that he was retiring, uh, he went on CNN and backed up Nancy Pelosi on this Russian issue. We at all with the assessment then from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in that private meeting with the president earlier this week, where she reportedly said to him, with you, sir, all roads lead to Putin, all roads lead to Russia. Do you share some of that concern? Well, I've read some of that, and I was skeptical of it, like most Republicans were. But I've got to say, this business about the Ukraine server, which no one had ever heard about until it was mentioned recently, tells me, what are we trying to exculpate Russia, who all of our trained intelligence officials have consistently corroborated that Russia was behind the uh, election meddling, not the Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you agree then with Nancy Pelosi's assessment. Do you? Well, there's a lot of things I've agreed with the speaker on. Now, this is a conservative Republican who is now backing Nancy. I mean, this is how crazy we've gotten. The conservative Republican backing Nancy Pelosi on the issue of the president of the United States potentially being compromised by Russia. That's where we are, folks. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, it's unbelievable. It is absolutely unbelievable. You cannot be serious. Uh, but this is where we are. And uh, it was, I think, the next day that Rooney officially announced that he is not going to be seeking re-election, which, of course, frees him up. I mean, he is about as protected as you can get. Uh, He's rich, and he's retiring, and he's old. I've talked a lot about how I've never understood why it is that uh, old white men who've been successful don't use their uh, elder statesman status to to be ballsier. Most of them tend to be uh, more wimpy for some bizarre reason because they've lost their balls. But it does not appear as if that affliction has impacted Congressman Rooney. And so it appears as if the Democrats have at least a shot at one current Republican to vote with them on impeachment. Now, I don't understand why Justin Amash, who got elected as a Republican, was a Tea Party Republican, left the party. It essentially was a force to lead the party because of Trump, not because he changed his mind about his policy positions. I don't understand why a lot of people are not counting Justin Amash as a Republican vote for impeachment. To me, he absolutely does and should count, and that would give you two. Uh, I've always said three is the magic number. You need three, not that it's going to matter because once Trump is impeached in the House, there's no chance that, uh, that, that when that vote happens that a majority does not vote to impeach Trump. And that's all you need in the House is a majority. But it does matter with regard to perception of whether or not the vote is, quote unquote, bipartisan. Uh, Bill Clinton was impeached in the House, and by my recollection, on at least one of the counts where he was successfully impeached by the House, at least four Democrats voted with Republicans to impeach him. The the media ignored them. They pretended that this was a a fully partisan impeachment, but it was not. There were a few Democrats who went along, which goes against the grain of that whole narrative that somehow it was a highly unpopular thing to do or that it was somehow the wrong thing to do. There were four Democrats, at least, uh, who voted uh, for Bill Clinton's impeachment. And so if you can get three, if you get Amash, Rooney, and I got to believe, I have to believe that at least a couple other Republicans who are retiring and have nothing really to lose will vote to impeach Donald Trump. I have no inside information on that, but I'm just going by my gut reaction. I got to believe if Rooney does come out and then provides cover for others to do the same, you're going to get a few Republicans to vote for uh, Donald Trump's impeachment in the House of Representatives. Now, speaking of this Russian situation, I do want to at least mention there was a weird uh, tiff that erupted between Hillary Clinton and uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who is uh, a congressman from Hawaii who is running for president. She's at like 1% or 2% in the polls. And the, uh, the, the tiff erupted over Clinton in an interview essentially accusing Gabbard of being a Russian tool that she is going to be the Jill Stein, if you will, of the 2020 election, that they are grooming her uh, potentially as a third-party candidate and uh, that this is all meant to help Donald Trump. And, you know, look, I, I have 
I have been trained for many years to despise Hillary Clinton. My first documentary film was an anti-Hillary Clinton film uh, funded for that purposes, thinking she was going to be the 2008 Democratic uh, nominee uh, by Citizens United, a very conservative uh, right-wing group that now is incredibly, unfortunately, supportive of Donald Trump. Uh, And so I have no love for Hillary Clinton, but I have defended her at times because I think she does get a bad rap. And I don't think she was nearly as bad a candidate as a lot of uh, conservatives like to pretend to believe. And frankly, I think the country would have been better off and conservatism would have been better off had she defeated Donald Trump. And I think eventually history is going to prove that. With all that said, I really don't understand where Hillary is coming from here. I get the suspicion about Gabbard. There's something weird about Gabbard. I mean, she's she's very smart, but she's got some odd opinions. She met with Assad. I, I certainly agree that there are some signs that uh, she's got a soft spot for Russia. Uh, but there's no evidence that she's some sort of a Russian asset. But, but there's also no evidence that she's going to run as a third-party candidate. She said she will not. And there's also no evidence that if she did run as a third-party candidate, that it would actually help Trump. Uh, I'm of the opinion that it would probably be a wash. Because, frankly, a lot of uh, her qualities appeal to Trump fans. Now, I realize Trump fans are a cult, and therefore they're unlikely to leave their cult leader. But if if you're in that category, and it only takes a couple percentage points to matter here, if you're in that category of you, you like Trump, but maybe you're a little tired of him, uh, and and maybe you're 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 more wedded towards a Democrat because there are a lot of Democrats who voted for Trump. Uh, you know, there's a lot to like about uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Not to mention she's kind of hot. I mean, for a politician, and you know, I can see that appealing to a lot of Trump fans. I mean, she's she's a she's got a Sarah Palin esque quality. She's not as pretty as Sarah Palin, but you know, she's got a Sarah Palin esque quality. She's Trumpian in her pronouncements and her in her tweets. Uh, I can see uh, her peeling off some of that Democratic Trump support. And I also cannot see, especially given the lessons of the 2016 election, all that many Democrats flocking to her instead of the Democratic candidate. Otherwise, she'd be doing a hell of a lot better than 1% or 2% in the Democratic primary. So I don't understand this theory to begin with. I think she's at best uh, a wash. If that were to even happen, not to mention, you know, there's no actual evidence that she is some sort of a a Russian plant. I do need to mention, since I I referenced third party, on Meet the Press today, Justin Amash left the door open towards a third party run uh, as, uh, I guess, the libertarian presidential candidate. Now, that, to me, would have a significant impact on a general election. If that occurred, I think that would hurt Trump because, let's face it, uh, you know, not that there's not many people like me, but people like me would now have a safe haven. There, we would not have to uh, vote for Trump, uh, and you know, we could feel good about ourselves. And you know, I don't know what percentage that is. I think Justin Amash might get five, six, seven percent. Now, you know, you could argue that if Biden was the other candidate, uh, that that might take away some votes from Biden because, you know, I don't think I would vote for Biden. It doesn't matter to me because or it doesn't matter my vote because I live in California, which is a huge state that's obviously going to go for the Democratic candidate regardless. But, um, you know, you could make an argument that maybe Amash might hurt Biden because some people who were on the fence uh, would decide to vote for Amash instead of voting for Biden. But I don't think we're talking about relatively small numbers here. I think by and large, an Amash candidacy would harm uh, Donald Trump because uh, I think it would be taken seriously, far more seriously than most libertarian candidates. Again, we're not talking huge percentages. I don't think we're, we're getting into a 10, 15 percent uh, category. But in, in an election where a few states are likely to be close, assuming that Trump is still potent and viable and he's going to have a ton of money, uh, I think that would be more significant than, uh, than Gabbard. Uh, and I don't think Gabbard's going to do it because Gabbard has uh, said that she won't. Not that that means anything anymore. Of course, you know, those kind of statements used to mean something, but they don't anymore. 
Now, uh, as far as the specific issues of impeachment uh, over the Ukrainian scandal, and frankly, I've said many times that that should just be the tip of the iceberg when it comes to why and how Donald Trump is impeached, there was a a, a extremely uh, theoretically important development there when Nick Mulvaney, who basically is the Trump cabinet, I mean, he essentially holds almost uh, all the important positions that there are, uh, held a, a press conference that was uh, supposed to uh, announce the the fact that the G7 was going to be held at Trump uh, at Trump's uh, golf resort at, at Doral in Florida. I'll get to that momentarily. But it made uh, some unexpected news because Mulvaney essentially acknowledged, about as clearly as you could, that there really was a quid pro quo between uh, Trump and Ukraine over military aid and what Ukraine would have to do in order to get it. And here's what Mulvaney said then. We knew that that money either had to go out the door by the end of September, or we had to have a really, really good reason not to do it. And that was the legality of the issue. But to be clear, what you just described is a quid pro quo. It is funding will not flow unless the investigation into the, into the Democratic server uh, happened as well. We, we do we do that all the time with foreign policy. We were holding up money at the same time for, uh, what was it, the Northern Triangle com- countries. We were holding up aid at the Northern Triangle countries so that they uh, so that they would change their policies on immigration. By, by the way, and this speaks to it, this speaks to an important, I'm sorry, this speaks to an important point because I heard this yesterday and I can never remember the gentleman who testified. Was it McKinney? The guy, is that his name? For me? I don't know him. He testified yesterday. And if you go, and if you believe the news reports, okay, because we've not seen any transcripts of this. The only transcript I've seen was Sondland's testimony morning, this morning. If you read the news reports and you believe them, what did McKinney say yesterday? Well, McKinney said yesterday that he was really upset with the political influence in foreign policy. That was one of the reasons he was so upset about this. And I have news for everybody. Get over it. There's going to be political influence in foreign policy. <laughs> now, get over it. Uh, I mean, really? Come on. Seriously? It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, um, that, to me, uh, and to many others, is a clear indication that the strategy there, at least in that moment, because the strategy keeps changing, is, hey, look, uh, we did what we're being accused of, but it's no big deal. Get over it. It happens all the time. Of course, he's conflating the it, the get over it. What is the it? I don't think anybody would be so naive, or most people won't be so naive, to think that there aren't ancillary things that occur in conversations and negotiations with foreign powers that might benefit uh, one party or the other, that might not have directly to do with the deal at hand. But when you put you go over that line and you go into the realm of that thing, that extra thing, that ancillary uh, topic being creating dirt on your political opponent, having foreign interference in a presidential election, especially just after you've had a massive investigation into that exact issue during your first election, I'm sorry, that's a totally different deal. That is not normal. That is not accepted. That is not something that we should be getting over. And, and of course, the, the White House uh, immediately uh, required Mulvaney to, to pull that back. But typical of the, of the Trump White House, they, and again, I never know if this is by design or if this, by, this is by accident, uh, dumb luck or whatever, but I have written before about how they love to give the cult options in what to believe. I love the poorly educated. And so they did it again here. They, they had Mulvaney pull it back. That's not really what I meant. But then the Trump campaign is literally selling T-shirts with the phrase, get over it. I mean, it, it's, it's insane. It's also partly genius. Because then that lets the cult believe whatever it is they choose to believe at that time. And it is becoming abundantly clear, not just with Mulvaney's comments, but with the testimony that is going on behind closed doors, that there absolutely was an obvious quid pro quo. I mean, based upon what we're hearing from the, these closed-door testimonies, it was 
It was clear. It was obvious. It was over several months. It, it went on uh, for an extended period of time involving numerous people. And the weirdest part is there were numerous elements of the quid pro quo. It wasn't just Biden. It was also, and I continue to believe, that part of this has to have had something to do with trying to help Roger Stone in his upcoming trial. I continue to be mystified why this is not getting any media traction, but that's the only thing that makes any sense to me, because at the time of this, Trump was no longer afraid of the past. He was no longer afraid uh, of Robert Mueller. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, Because Robert Mueller had taken a crap on live television and had blown the whole thing. So Trump is a guy who looks at the future. He's not a historian. He only cares about what's going to happen next to him in the next 15 minutes, usually. So that part of this equation has never made any damn sense to me. I'm open to someone explaining it to me, but I've not heard an explanation that makes more sense than, than the Roger Stone situation. But I digress. Anyway, the, the, the reality here is this is becoming obvious. I mean, I'm going to date myself, but there was once an incredibly uh, famous Saturday Night Live sketch back in the Eddie, Mur- uh, Eddie Murphy days where Eddie Murphy plays Buckwheat, and, um, and Buckwheat gets shot, <laughs> okay? This is, this is back in the old days, and uh, it's, I'm sure it's on YouTube. You can find it yourself. And the the entire skit is about the media reaction to Buckwheat getting shot by John David Stutz. And John David Stutz, of course, gets investigated by the media, and they're asking all these people around John David Stutz, do you believe he killed Buckwheat? And everybody around him is saying, oh, yeah, sure, that's all they ever talked about. In fact, just the other day, uh, he said, uh, hey, Saul, make me a new suit. I'm going to kill Buckwheat, and I want to look good on television. And I think it's almost a direct quote of the skit, by the way, which is kind of scary. The point is, with regard to the quid pro quo, this is like John David Stutz shooting Buckwheat. Everyone around uh, Donald Trump knew exactly what was happening. There's no doubt about this. This was a quid pro quo, holding military aid for political considerations that are likely a violation of American law involving a, a foreign uh, entity interfering in our elections on his behalf, using our own military as leverage to do that. Now, come on, people. Uh, that's impeachable. That, that I can't even think of something that would be you know, off the bat uh, more easily impeachable than that. It, it's not the most horrendous thing that someone could do, but it's clear cut. And, uh, and it's becoming more and more clear cut. He's going to be impeached. I still don't, though, see the movement in the Senate or what's going to move the Senate to where he's ever in major, uh, major danger of actually being removed from office. However, there is an indication that there's some cracks. And I think this Doral situation has proved that. Because the other thing Mulvaney said in that press conference is, and this shocked the hell out of everybody, is, although it shouldn't have, because Trump already raised this trial balloon. This is the way Trump works. He raises a bat crap crazy trial balloon. And by, apparently, by the way, bat crap crazy is the, the word, the, the phrase of the day on the uh, Individual One podcast. It was not intended to be so, but that it's just turned out that way. But, uh, you know, Trump raised that trial balloon that he's going to have the G7 at his own resort at Doral in Miami. Now, some of you may recall that I have a, a very soft spot in my heart for Doral in Miami because some of the uh, best moments of my childhood were spent there. We used to go there uh, on a basically a yearly basis for at least three or four years uh, during my early teen years and uh, for the, Dural, the old Doral Eastern Golf Tournament. Uh, which Trump lost. Trump lost that tournament, ironically, to Mexico because he didn't have the money to make up for the lack of sponsors who had dropped the tournament when he started running for president, which is, which is yet another data point that Trump is not that rich. I have written about this. If he was really that rich, Doral never would have lost the PGA Tour event that they lost again to Mexico. Uh, and so, you know, Doral back when I, this was way before Trump owned it, 
uh, Doral was a paradise. I mean, when I, I when I think of the fondest memories of of my youth, it's Doral. I mean, Doral was literally like a heaven to me as a as a young uh, golf fanatic, uh, spending uh, you know a week there during the tournament and getting to meet all the pros, and it, it was just such a tremendous place. And uh, and you know you're staying right there on the golf course and all that. Uh, and so it's 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 strange for, to me to see Doral now become something completely different. But one of the things it's become is a shithole, and it's also become a disaster. It's lost the PJ Tour event. Uh, it's losing money hand over fist, and Trump desperately needed some sort of a PR event for Doral. I think that's more of what motivated him here. I think it was mostly ego, him wanting to show the world leaders. Hey, I own this place. Look how awesome I am. As well as using the G7 as an advertisement across the world for Doral, which is really struggling. So when it was announced that the G7 was going to be held at Doral, people went crazy. And understandably so, because this is a clear violation of the Emoluments Clause. Andrew Napolitano uh, even said that on Fox News Channel. Other people uh, agreed with it. He's in constant violation of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. But this is this is really pretty grotesque because he's essentially awarding a massive government contract to himself. And so the backlash was strong and it was widespread and it was even within Republicans. And today it was announced that Trump has backed down. Now, Trump did so uh, like a child and went on Twitter and was very angry about it and uh, blamed Democrats and the media. Uh, but, of course, he neglected to mention that Republicans were very much against this as well. And behind the scenes, apparently, there was a huge GOP backlash. And that, to me, is the most significant part of this politically, because that's the only reason why Trump backed down. Trump would not have backed down without some sort of internal Republican backlash. And the fact that it existed at least shows that there's a pulse of the Trump resistance within the Republican Congress. We don't know how strong that pulse is. We don't know how widespread it is, but it shows there's a pulse and as long as there's a pulse, there's some semblance of hope. So that's what I take away from this. I actually think this is a sign of significant weakness on the part of Trump politically, that he would back down on this. This is not – I mean, Trump doesn't back down on anything. That's his whole M.O. And for him to back down on this, where he, I'm sure, was very much looking forward to showing off Doral to the G7 leadership, not to mention you know, helping his, his troubled property, Doral, that's an indication that there is at least behind the scenes some semblance of Trump resistance within the Republican Party. And then there's probably what should be the, the most politically uh, and from a human standpoint troubling Trump screw-up over the last uh, couple of weeks and maybe of his entire presidency. And that is the situation with regard to Syria and Turkey and the Kurds. And uh, after an absolutely bizarro world, indescribable letter that got released apparently by Trump, which apparently uh, Erdogan, the president of Turkey, threw in the trash quite literally. I mean, this this letter has been widely and and rightfully uh, ridiculed across the world. It was it, so many people didn't even think it was real. That's how absurd it was. Correct. Uh, that he wrote this letter uh, that that re- seems like a child wrote it, and and I, I do believe that at, at his essence, Donald Trump is a child, and so he he writes a childlike letter to Erdogan, and uh, Erdogan throws it in the trash and immediately goes. Uh, into uh, into Syria, in the northern Syria, and does what he wants, attacks the Kurds, the slaughter begins. And Trump, of course, is outraged and incensed because he's been played. At best, he's been played. I mean, that's assuming he's not compromised. Uh, but it appears, the conventional wisdom is, he gets played by Erdogan. He, he thinks this buddy of his, who you know allowed him to build uh, the Trump Tower in Istanbul, so you know Trump thinks they're buddies. Uh, and Erdogan goes and and pulls a fast one on him, and uh, and Trump's pissed off about it. Well, Trump needs this to stop. Trump needs these headlines to stop because now this slaughter is occurring because of him. He's being perceived as having given Erdogan the green light to slaughter our allies, the Kurds. 
And so what ends up happening? Well, this is classic Trump on so many levels. He sends Vice President Pence to meet with Erdogan. At first, Erdogan says, no, go. I'm not even going to meet with them. Then they do meet. And Pence announces a Syrian ceasefire between Turkey and the Kurds. But, of course, he's given Turkey everything they could have possibly wanted in exchange for stopping the bad headlines, or at least reducing the bad headlines, allegedly stopping the slaughter, which may or may not have actually stopped or might not stop in the longer run, depending on who you believe here. But this is classic Trump. He puts himself in a in a poorly leveraged position because this is kind of like what's happened with China. He, the China situation, he loses his leverage by by going on the attack too close to an election, which the Chinese don't have to worry about. So now he knows he's got to worry about re-election. He knows the Chinese tariffs are going to hurt the economy, which is going to kill his re-election narrative. So now he's got to make a deal with China, but with less leverage than he would have had had he done this immediately after taking office, as bad an idea as it is. Well, similarly... Now he has no leverage in the negotiations because he desperately wants to stop the killing. He wants to stop the headlines. So he'll do anything to stop that. So what ends up happening is Erdogan gets everything he wants. We're essentially doing his dirty work for him without having to kill the Kurds. and, 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 And what do the Kurds get out of this? They lose their homeland. So they so they endure a, a partial slaughter. This is under the best of circumstances, and they have to they have to leave. And Erdogan gets everything he wants. ISIS gets what they want, uh, and all all the Trump gets out of this is he's able to claim he made a deal, which is the classic Trump mo of he's an arsonist who then pretends to be a firefighter. He creates the fire, and then he says, I'm going to come in and save us from this fire that I created. When, in fact, what's happened is a lot of stuff is burned down by the time that the rest of the fire somewhat gets put out. And, you know, again, go back to the theme of this entire podcast, the desensitization. Here is a statement by Trump at one of his rallies talking about the ceasefire agreement. And I truly believe in a rational world, in a remotely rational world, what you're about to hear would immediately cause the impeachment and potential removal of the president of the United States, not necessarily because uh, that it's anything illegal, but simply because, you know what, maybe it wouldn't be impeachment. Maybe it would be 25th Amendment. But this is a person who is not fit to be president of the United States. Here he is. Listen to his tone talking to his Colt 45 base at a campaign rally where uh, he is putting all of this in the terms of a uh, of a playground fight between children. And uh, this makes my blood boil. Uh, I find this to be chilling, considering the fact that innocent people have been slaughtered because of his decision-making here. And listen to how he rationalizes it to his cult and how much they eat it up. This is this really uh, is so remarkable. I'm going to play the whole minute and 46 seconds of it. We've all agreed on a pause or a ceasefire in the border region of Syria. And it was unconventional what I did. I said, they're going to have to fight a little while. Sometimes you have to let them fight a little while. Then people find out how tough the fighting is. These guys know right up here. These guys know. Right? Sometimes you have to let them fight. It's like two kids in a lot. You got to let them fight, and then you pull them apart. But it was unconventional. But they fought for a few days, and it was pretty vicious and the Kurds, who are our friends, and Turkey's our friend. But they fought. It was tougher. I mean, it was nasty. And you couldn't make a deal for 15, think of it, for 15 years, 20 years, they couldn't make a deal. The Kurds didn't want to move. Turkey didn't want to budge. And Turkey was having a lot of bad things happen from this region, in all fairness to Turkey. They were having a lot of bad, but they didn't want to. Now, all of a sudden, they're fighting, and it's not fun having bullets going all over the place. And we went there. And we said, we want to pause. And the Kurds have been terrific. They're going to move back a little bit. We're going to keep ISIS all nice and locked up. Okay? We're going to find more of them. 
And Turkey's all set, and President Erdogan was great, and we're going to take the worst sanctions and tariffs and everything that I put on the country. We put the worst — I mean, I don't think they could have economically survived, but that doesn't matter. President Erdogan was a gentleman. He understood it. But without a little tough love — you know what tough love is, right? Without a little tough love, they would have never made this deal. I mean, really? You cannot be serious. I, 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 I'm I'm literally speechless. Um, this reminds me of I've I've got a, a seven year old daughter and a two year old daughter. This is like if um, our two year old daughter uh, pooped in the middle of the living room, and when we confronted her about why she pooped on the carpet in the living room. Uh, she told us how wonderful this poop was, how great it smelled, and actually, you know what? Uh, we should be congratulating her on this poop because it actually makes the living room seem so much uh, better than it was before. It, uh, the coloring enhances the carpet. Uh, the smell is is just divine. And uh, and really, come on, people, uh, don't you see how wonderful I am for taking this poop in the middle of the living room? I mean that that's that's really pretty close, and and the the level of uh, of discourse there, for lack of a better term, is is second third grade right maybe I love the poorly educated and this is the president of the United States talking about the slaughter of innocent people, and but in his mind, any deal is a good deal because he can sell. The deal. He's a terrible deal maker, but at least with regard to his cult, he's pretty good at selling the deal because they'll believe almost anything he says and they inherently trust him. So if he's done it, it must be good because after all, he killed the Wicked Witch of the West, Hillary Clinton. So we trust him. Even if it seems crazy, we're going to trust him because, you know, after all, that's why he's president. This is this is scary stuff. This is this is unfit to be president of the United States kind of material. And more and more people are saying that this is a situation where the president is unfit. People who used to be taken very seriously. Admiral William McCraven wrote a New York Times op-ed, and I, I you know, I mentioned on Twitter, I can't stand that these people always go to the New York Times and the Washington Post, because that's where the prestige is. That's where everyone will say, Wow, ooh, wow. Jeez, great job, uh, Admiral McRaven. You, you really you told it like it is, and it was a brave stand for you to, to write an op-ed. Our public is under attack from the president. Yeah, that's great, but it has no influence in the New York Times or the Washington Post because the Trump cult won't ever hear about it, and if they do hear about it, they'll easily dismiss it because that's part of the fake news. To me, these things should always be offered to Fox News Channel first. And if Fox News Channel rejects it, that can then be part of the narrative. And you continue to put pressure on Fox News Channel to have some semblance, some semblance of journalistic integrity here so that they either do start to publish and broadcast these things or they are exposed more and more as the joke and state-run media that they have become. But here is the guy who, who led the raid that killed Osama bin Laden. Writing an op-ed in the New York Times. Our republic is under attack from the president. Our republic is under the ta- attack from the president. And uh, this is a, a half-a-day story. A half-a-day story. Any other presidency, <laughs> this is a month-long story. And everybody ends up knowing about it. But in this case, eh, we move on. And uh, it have almost no, probably zero impact all going back to the theme of this podcast, which is the desensitization. The attention spans are too short. It takes three or four days of constant reporting for a story to make any kind of real impact in American culture today because of the fragmentation, because of the short attention spans, because there are so many different media options, because we're so damn busy. And so none of these stories make it to three or four days. They're lucky if they make it to three or four hours, and that's just not enough to have any real impact in the larger scheme of things. Now, as far as the political situation, there's been only one major poll since the Democratic debate uh, of last Tuesday, 
That poll showed Joe Biden back up by 10 points nationally. That's a positive development since I believe that Biden is the person with the best chance to beat Donald Trump. And he would at least create some semblance of normalcy, even though I'm no fan of Biden. He's a gaffe machine and he's clearly too old for the job. But, you know, if you're looking for a safe haven for four years, Joe Biden is the guy, the guy who's going to beat Donald Trump under the current political circumstances. So I was somewhat reassured by that but it's only one poll it's too early i I need to see at least two or three more polls uh post that debate to see what impact if any uh, that uh television event had uh but at least it's not you know bad news it's not you know warren up by 10 because then uh would it'd be a really bad situation biden would basically be done so uh the, the political situation hasn't changed very much since our, our last Individual One podcast, there's no indication that there's been a collapse in Trump's approval ratings. They continue to be pretty much exactly what they have been through all of this. Somewhere in the 41, 42, 43 percentile with disapproval right around 53, 54, 55 percent. Uh, that is n- not a good position to be in for re-election, but it's still in the ballpark. And as long as he stays in the ballpark as an incumbent with a ton of money behind him, an electoral college advantage, and the fact that Democrats are very likely to screw this up, he remains potent. He remains a viable candidate. And that's why, as we end uh, this edition of the Individual One podcast, I'm going to place uh, his uh, re-election uh, chances at still 40%. Uh, I'm not going to go below 40% at this point, based upon the current uh, circumstances. And as far as uh, whether or not he'll remain in office throughout his first term, I'm going to say that the chances of him not remaining in office, in other words, he leaves office before his first term is up, I'm going to put that as an, at an all-time high for this podcast at 15%. Still a very long shot, but it, we're now getting into the realm of somewhat reasonability. And the reason why I I jumped that up slightly is because of his backing down on Trump Doral. I really think that's a sign of political weakness, that he would not have to do that if there had not been some serious indication that Republicans are willing finally to stand up to him at least on something. That doesn't that's a far cry from removal from office, but at least it's a it's a it's a legitimate crack. Uh, in the armor. And so that's why I'm putting the chances of uh, Trump not finishing his first term in office at 15%. Uh, that'll do it for this episode. Uh, we Bear with us over the next week. We may or may not do an episode on Wednesday or next weekend. It's possible we may miss two episodes in a row because I'm going to be on assignment this week uh, traveling. Uh, but uh, just bear with us. We'll be back soon, I promise. Regardless, please remember to uh, subscribe, rate, review, and share this via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual the Number One Pod. Until next time, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.